This is Macro Horizons, episode 116, Spring Inflection, presented by BMO Capital Markets. I'm your host, Ian Lingen, here with Ben Jeffrey to bring you our thoughts from the trading desk for the upcoming week of April 19th. As we ponder the difference between a Mimi and a Them Them, it strikes us that being out of touch with technology could in fact be symptomatic of an underlying issue that results from one being confined at home for more than a year, with only close family and friends to appreciate the struggles of trying to find the files inside the computer. Huh. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Each week, we offer an updated view on the U.S. rates market and a bad joke or two. But more importantly, the show is centered on responding directly to questions submitted by listeners and clients. We also end each show with our musings on the week ahead. Please feel free to reach out on Bloomberg or email me at ian.lyngen at bmo.com with questions for future episodes. We value your input and hope to keep the show as interactive as possible. So that being said... Let's get started. In the week just past, the Treasury market put in a fascinating performance in terms of the divergence between incoming economic data, supply, and the actual price action. By way of a quick recap, we saw a strong core CPI print at three-tenths of a percent month over month. We saw retail sales come in at nearly 10% for the month of March, as well as strong showings from Empire and Philly Fed on the manufacturing side. We also saw a $38 billion 10-year auction that tailed just four-tenths of a basis point, as well as a $24 billion 30-year reopening. All of this would suggest that there should have been a consistent upward pressure on Treasury yields. In fact, what was realized was the exact opposite. Over the course of April, we have seen 10-year yields rally from effectively 175 to 153. This comes in contrast to the broader economic outlook, and it also puts into context just how far investors have gotten ahead of the reflation and reopening narrative. Powell has recently said that for monetary policy to change, we need to see the actual economic data improve as opposed to simply elevated market-based indicators of inflation expectations and sentiment more broadly. All of this with the backdrop of continued record high equity prices left the market to ponder exactly what was going on. Now, part of this is going to be a positional skew. The market did come into the second quarter leaning notably short, particularly for real money investors. So it follows intuitively that there would be a round of short covering that emerged when the treasury market failed to sell off even further on what is arguably some of the strongest economic data that we are going to see for some time. One of our primary concerns remains that because Washington concentrated so much of the fiscal stimulus during the first quarter with fiscal bailout 2.0 hitting households in January and then 3.0 hitting households in March and the beginning part of April, that in effect, we have brought forward not only a fair amount of consumption and retail spending, but 
also the associated hiring needs. So by effectively compressing the reopening into the first quarter with a little bit of follow through in the second quarter, the risk is that investors would have taken that trajectory of growth and assumed that it carries through throughout all of 2021. So in this context, we're reasonably encouraged to see the market pull back off the yield highs if for no other reason than it makes 2% 10 year yields a very difficult target from the current position. Well, Ian, it looks like Dogecoin wasn't the only thing that rallied this week. Treasury markets certainly rallied. And what I find fascinating about the price action in treasuries was the fact that it came despite a series of very bond bearish developments over the course of the last two weeks. Recall at the beginning of April, we had a strong employment report with more than a million jobs on net added to non-farm payrolls. We then saw a decades high ISM services print, as well as higher than expected core CPI this week, to say nothing of the blowout retail sales print for the month of March. And still, we managed to see 10-year yields retrace to 153 after peaking at 177 in late March. This does beg the question, how has investor sentiment turned over the course of just two weeks, and what does it imply for the path of rates going forward? In addition to that string of data, I would also add the latest development on the vaccine front to the list of factors that are influencing sentiment at this stage. We've seen the FDA come out and recommend that the Johnson & Johnson vaccine be paused, which was originally expected to last a few days, but now seems like it could be more on the order of weeks. And this is notable given what has thus far been a pretty seamless ramp up in the inoculation process, at least in the U.S. So the fact that the path toward herd immunity suffered something of a setback even at a time when the data has come in stronger than expected, really reinforces this idea that expectations may have gotten a bit stretched in regards to optimism on the recovery, even if the Q1 data has been very strong, no doubt about that. I would also add that this does reflect what Powell said at the beginning of the recovery, and that was effectively, as goes the pandemic, so goes the U.S. economy. And what we have seen is investors willing to scale back optimism based on some of the struggles of rolling out the vaccine. And I would argue that's not inconsistent with the risks that the U.S. economy now faces. And while this news is no question significant, it is worth emphasizing the share of Johnson & Johnson vaccines that make up the overall vaccination picture in the U.S. Pfizer and Moderna by far make up most of the vaccines administered. And in terms of individuals who are now fully vaccinated, two shots in the case of Pfizer and Moderna, one in the case of Johnson & Johnson, only roughly a tenth of those people who are fully vaccinated were given the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. So going forward, while this is a headwind on the margin, the fact that Pfizer and Moderna continue to represent such a large share of the overall doses is encouraging that herd immunity will probably be achieved, even if it takes a bit longer, assuming this pause is more than just a few days. The estimates currently stand that we will get to 75% inoculation by September rather than July as a result of this Johnson & Johnson pause. I'll argue, however, that there might be a bigger risk at play, and that is people's willingness to embrace the vaccine. Now, while there has always been a subset of the U.S. population that has expressed openly in the polls that they are unwilling to be vaccinated, the headlines associated with some of the Johnson & Johnson side effects are pretty dramatic, even if the outcomes are extremely rare. 
in the context of what one might ultimately anticipate in terms of what percentage of the U.S. population that ultimately embraces the vaccine, I can't help but think of all the polling risks and inaccuracies, frankly, that we have seen revealed over the course of the last five years. And what this all boils down to is a theme that I think you and I have discussed quite frequently, Ian, which is that it's going to be the latter parts of the path out of the pandemic and, frankly, the economic recovery that are going to become the most difficult. The initial surge in hiring as lockdowns were rolled back was always going to be the simplest part of that process. The pickup in spending as a function of in-person commerce now being available, that was always going to be relatively straightforward. But now that we've reached this point, we're starting to hit the time period when not only are firms going to need to retool to whatever the new normal ultimately looks like, but the influence of the massive amount of fiscal stimulus that's been put into the system, which certainly contributed to March's retail sales data, is beginning to fade. So from that perspective, while a strong Q1 and even a strong Q2 are almost a foregone conclusion, it's once we move beyond that that at least has me a bit more concerned. Then you made a great observation about how quickly firms are going to be willing to or even able to adjust to the new norm. Unlike when we entered the pandemic, where frankly there was a great deal of implied and explicit urgency and haste, the transition out of the pandemic, there's a bit more flexibility as we think about hiring needs, reopening needs, even restocking needs, particularly in the context of the frontline service sector providers, restaurants, bars, entertainment, and all the firms that really benefit from the in-person experience won't necessarily find it advantageous to ramp up to 2019 levels immediately. In fact, it makes a lot more sense to take slow and measured steps and scale up staffing levels and scale up inventories until there's a better sense of the amount of demand that can actually be realized post-pandemic. It won't be as dramatic as turning the lights back on in the way that turning the lights off in March of 2020 hit the U.S. economy. This is also complicated by the work-from-home revolution and the fact that a lot of people, roughly 25% of the labor market, is in a position to slowly scale up going back into the office. That's one of the biggest risks and unknowns as we think about the path out of the pandemic. Do you think this move we've seen from 177 10-year yields down to 153 has been a function of the market coming to grips with that realization or more a reflection of a positional skew, maybe some flows-driven moves by a market that was decidedly short when 10-year yields were at 170? I would say without question, it was a combination. What we had to start the second quarter was the return of Japanese investors. We have seen that via the MOF data as well as anecdotally, and that led to an initial stabilizing bid. That stabilizing bid then ran up against those stronger than expected data points that we highlighted earlier. And the fact that the sell-off failed to extend when faced with such strong numbers led investors to stop out shorts, which then took on a life of its own and became self-fulfilling insofar as it triggered several key technical levels. The question now becomes how flat is the market versus their benchmark? And what will it take to either see 10-year yields back at 140 or take another shot at 175? I'm glad you brought up that point of the Japanese buying because the MOF data we got this past week revealed significant inflows to Japan of foreign bonds, $15.6 billion, while short, not all treasuries. 
is well above average for the first week of the Japanese fiscal year. Over the past 10 years, we've seen average buying of just $1.9 billion. So it's fair to say that the willingness of not just Japanese investors, but the foreign market as a whole to add duration exposure and chase this latest bullishness will be very important in answering that question of whether we get to 140 or back up to 175 first. There are a couple things I would note. First, the fact that Japanese buying out of the gate was as strong as it was does bode well for the next several months as investment strategies are typically not implemented day one, rather they are scaled in over time. So we'll be closely watching the incoming weekly MOF data for further evidence of a buildup in this demand. In addition, if you look at the timing of the price action, a lot of these moves occurred during the U.S. session. So it's unlike in the first quarter where a great deal of the repricing occurred overnight. What we're seeing is some of the dip buying emerge domestically. Moreover, if we look historically, overseas real money accounts has a specific set of incentives that leave them more likely to follow price action rather than attempt to time the inflection point. And focusing on both this and next week, I would argue we saw some of that dynamic play out in the primary market. Despite all three of this week's auctions coming in just two days on Monday and Tuesday, a decent 10-year and very strong 30-year set a constructive auction stage going into this week's 20-year reopening and next month's refunding auctions. For all the concern that was offered around the seven-year auctions in February and March, we're reaching the point when strong sponsorship for treasuries at auctions is once again becoming thematic. So this week, while on the margin we may see a bit of a concession for 20s, generally speaking, if the most recent price action is any indication, it should come and go with solid demand. Further to your point, Ben, this was supposed to be the year in which increased auction sizes ultimately broke the treasury market. It doesn't seem to be occurring in a timeline consistent with what the bond vigilantes might have otherwise assumed. Nonetheless, it does warrant keeping a watchful eye on auction performance. So we've sort of reached the point when we need to put the emphasis on the economic data primary market, foreign flows, maybe a little bit of the positional skew in terms of a short base? Yeah, I would agree. And it's very much like the closing joke of a podcast. You don't want to put the wrong emphasis on the wrong syllable. In the week ahead, the treasury market has effectively no economic information to help guide trading. As a result, we expect that the emphasis will be split between the Johnson & Johnson news combined with the process towards vaccinations more broadly, not only in the U.S. but also overseas, and the price action itself. The pullback of 10-year yields from 177 to 153 has been accompanied with a collective rethink of the overall trajectory of the market. We've long maintained that the first and second quarter would serve to define the upper bound for the trading range in longer dated yields that will persist over the course of the year. This conflicts with the consensus expectation for the market to be characterized by repricings of 10 to 15 basis points followed by a period of consolidation and then subsequently another repricing up until the point that 10-year yields are sustainably above 2%. The fact that the market has rallied so early in the year speaks to the idea that investors are looking past the short-term 
upside from fiscal and monetary policy stimulus and beginning to look with a more critical eye at the prospects for a post-pandemic economy to be anything like it was pre-pandemic. To be fair, shops will reopen and schools will transition back to in-person learning. The travel industry will rebound, although perhaps not as quickly as the airlines would like to see. There really is very little debate on whether or not the world returns to normal. After all, while this might be our first pandemic, it is not the first pandemic. And as a result, we can all say with a straight face that by 2025, the world will look an awful lot like it did in 2019. The bigger debate really does come down to how long that process will take. The market was pricing in a remarkable amount of optimism earlier this year. We can see that in break-evens, as well as the increase in real yields. What we're transitioning to now, however, is a more active debate of just how justified that backup in rates actually was, and, at least from our perspective, if there is any rationale to get 10-year yields above the range that persisted throughout the latter part of 2019, long before the coronavirus was on the market's collective radar. For context, that range in 10-year yields was 143 to 197. This means that we have taken a great deal of solace in the roughly 25 basis point retracement in 10s, as it does conform well with our broader expectations that we end 2021 with 10-year yields in a range of 125 to 150. We've reached the point in this week's episode where we'd like to offer our sincere thanks and condolences to anyone who has managed to make it this far. And with pandemic lockdowns remaining in place throughout many regions, as we scroll through the array of streamable films on offer, we're reminded of the timeless wisdom of the late Patches O'Houlihan, that if you can doge a wrench, you can doge a coin. Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. Please visit us at bmocm.com backslash macrohorizons. As we aspire to keep our strategy effort as interactive as possible, we'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode. So please email me directly with any feedback at ian.lingen at bmo.com. You can listen to this show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. This show and resources are supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show has been produced and edited by Puddle Creative. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular 
particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. FEMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options, or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interests in you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets in securities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For further information, please go to bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal.